Hey guys, so it's me here again. So like I said, uh, I wanted to do this a little more in depth, but couldn't get a hold of Kurt and I was really pressed for time today. So I hope it turns out okay. This is going to be part one of a three-part series we're going to cover over the next, I don't know how many weeks or months, but I start with Ruby Ridge and ending with OKC. But to the best of my knowledge, every information or all information I presented, I should say, was factual. Um, of course I had some opinions in there, but for the most part, it was good factual content. And, uh, I really encourage you guys to research this and read about it. Um, this has been something that's captivated me since, you know, a young age, the, the story of the Weaver family and Ruby Ridge. So, but anyways, uh, I hope you guys enjoyed it and, uh, we'll catch you later. guys welcome to a a uh a bonus episode of steel toes and scoreboards my audio aq is all <laughs> off here let me make some adjustments it's a uh, friday afternoon we are um doing a remote recording today we're gonna do a bonus episode or as kurt argued this could be a steel toes number two episode <clears throat> um and I can't get a hold of my co-host. I overslept this morning, as did he. Uh, I guess he still is. But uh, we're just going to roll, or try to roll. Uh, we're going to talk about something today that I've been passionate about for a long time. We're going to talk about Ruby Ridge 1992, uh, the Weaver family, the standoff with the FBI and the ATF, and the Idaho National Guard, um, Idaho State Police, local county authorities, and just it—it's—it is a—it is a harrowing tale. Um, it is a scary story, and unfortunately, is a deadly story. Uh, but an interesting story, and I have made the argument before that this is directly linked and i believe this with my heart and you can hop in your google machines and you can google check this i believe completely in my heart that what happened in ruby ridge in 92 played a big part in waco in 1993 and those two events directly played a unanimous part in timothy mcveigh's decision in 1995 to blow up the murrah federal building in oklahoma city I remember all three of these events. I, I vaguely remember five because, you know, you're three, four, five years old. Some of your first memories start coming to you at that age. I vaguely remember the summer of 92 seeing something on TV once or twice about Ruby Ridge. I can remember hearing that. I can remember sitting in front of the television in my grandparents' living room. Uh, so I, I remember that. Um. Waco in 93, David Koresh and the Branch Davidians. I def I was six, whatever, you know. I, I, I do remember that. 
I remember the the infamous scene of the tank being driven into the side of the building, knocking the walls down. And then, of course, eight years old or so, I definitely remember OKC. But uh, we're not really talking about Waco or Oklahoma City today. We're talking about we are talking about Ruby Ridge in '92. Uh, the story that this and it, what was funny was when I first pitched this to Kurt, I was because man, we've done so many sports episodes. We've done a couple bonus episodes. We've only done one real still toes episode. That was the day after my grandfather died. Uh, I just, Kurt had said he didn't really remember this story. I mean, after we talked about it, we've talked about it more and more over the couple of weeks. But he said he started remembering. He he was so enamored with the story, so hooked in there. And, uh, yeah. So, I don't need much of the laptop. I printed out Kurt's notes. But of course, I'm gonna. Ha- I got the laptop here just in case. You know, I want to be as factual with this as possible because this is a legitimate story. This is a legitimate. You know, this is history. You know, the gun control advocates, gun right activists. Uh, I've never really been a uh, an anti law enforcement guy. I've always kind of been a back the blue type deal, but. Uh, as I put in our fir- our first show, our second show opening that we that we've done here, or whatever. The obviously I didn't play it today because I'm still pissed off with it. Me and Kurt's gonna have to re-record it. But as it says in there, this is why Americans don't trust their country. You know, Ruby Ridge was a serious fucking government overreach, completely. Now, granted, I'm not backing criminals. The Weaver family did some things, and they were involved in some things. Whether they got involved in there or not on their own, you'll find out in the story, you know, or if that's just a, hey, we've been hanging around these people, which, you know, anyways, I don't want to get into it, but, but, you know, they did some wrong things too, but this is a situation that could have totally, totally been handled differently, been, you know, and... As as you would find out later, if you hop in your Google machines, you know, right there within the series of, you know, three years, you had three major horrifying, you know, events with, with the government here. You had, you know, Ruby Ridge, you had Waco, and you had OKC. The things that happened at Ruby Ridge in this little town of, you know, Naples, Idaho, in Boundary County, you know, you're 40, 50 miles south of the Canadian border, what happened in this little town with the FBI and the ATF and the U.S. Marshal Service changed a lot of policies that the federal government has put in place about some things. Because uh, there was some shit that went down after the shit that did go down. So, uh, all right, guys, I'm gonna I'm gonna pause it here, and you'll never know I'm gone when I pick it back up. I'm gonna try to get a hold of my co-host one more time and. Since I've already got six and a half minutes of tape rolling here, if I can't get a hold of Kurt, then I guess you know what? I'm just going to roll with it myself. I got a little, little bit of time today before I got to get cleaned up and get to the doctor. So, uh, all right. See you guys shortly. All right, guys. So, I cannot get a hold of Kurt Kelly. So, I mean, I overslept. You got to understand, uh, <clears throat> I kind of dictate our schedule a little bit of when we record like this is a kid weekend so normally we don't do anything on kid weekends Uh, and this is a busy day for me 
I go to the laundromat like every other week. So on the weekends when the kids stay the whole weekend, Friday mornings, I go do laundry, go do my grocery shopping because the little heathens will eat me out of house and home over the weekend. But uh, every once in a while, we try to throw a bonus episode in. But we're, you know, our normal schedule is every other Saturday night on weekends. I don't have the kids. So, but at any rate, um, we're gonna we're gonna roll with this. So we're talking about Ruby Ridge <clears throat> in the main. Uh, I don't want to say antagonist. I'll say protagonist. I think the antagonist would be the United States government. Well, uh, the main protagonist would be Randy Weaver. Uh, Randy Weaver was born January 3rd, 1948 uh, in a little town in Iowa. Uh, 1968, Weaver joins the Army, becomes a member of the Green Braves. Okay? They're a bunch of badasses. Uh... I, um, hang on. Okay, sorry about that. I lost my focus there. I had a text message. So, anyway, so at 68, Weaver joins the United States Army. He becomes a member of the Green Berets. He's stationed at Fort Bragg in North Carolina. So, you know, during the height of the Vietnam War, he's in North Carolina, Fort Bragg, which, as you know from Sylvester Stallone's First Blood, the very first Rambo movie, you know, he talks about Bragg. Anyways... Uh, in 1970, uh, in Fort Dodge, Iowa, while he's on leave from Bragg, he starts dating this girl he had dated back in his high school days named Vicki Jordanson. Um, November 1971, they marry. Now, I should preface this by saying that both Weaver and Vicki are from religious families, uh, very strong christian views like um i don't want to say teetotalers but you kind of get where i'm driving at with this um they marry in 71 in fort dodge iowa uh they give birth to their first child in the spring of 76 and a couple years go by and if you remember you know in your memories you know the late 70s early 80s mid 80s was pretty hard on the economy at times especially the farmers and they're living in iowa you know they're they're living in iowa they're in the midwest they're around a bunch of farming communities they're seeing what's going on and you know the banks are foreclosing on the farmers you know the federal government's not really doing anything to help anybody so then but i don't know what's happened with my voice here but it changed there for a minute sound definitely got a voice for radio there uh but although they're both real headstrong and they've gave birth to a child and then they have another child coming um and later on in 78 their second child a son samuel who will play a huge part in this ruby ridge story vicky's kind of wears the pants in in some aspects so they begin <clears throat> Her and, her and Randy begin having visions of, of a world that's coming to an end. Uh, the apocalypse. The rapture. That's what they always talk about. And they want to be safe from this. Where they don't have to be completely dependent on money. They don't have to be completely dependent on electricity or a lot of televisions or anything that puts the word out there other than the word of God. So they start talking about... Um, 
self-sufficiency, survival techniques, living off the grid. And Weaver, who comes from a family of gun enthusiasts, not nuts, because by all intents and purposes from research I've done throughout the years over on this guy, Weaver come from a pretty normal family, but they're gun enthusiasts. This gives Weaver a free pass to just start collecting more and more guns. They, so, you know, July 78, Sam Weaver comes along. 1982, they had give birth to the third child, their second daughter. And then during this process between Samuel's birth in 78 and child number three, Rachel's birth during the 1982, they've been searching where they can find property and buy a property on a mountaintop high away from the rest of the world. They buy a 20-acre plot of land on Ruby Ridge. Although it's been argued over the years, they actually settle on Caribou Ridge. Either way, where they settle at is called Ruby Ridge. And they're 50 miles south of the Canadian border. It's in Boundary County, Idaho, in a little town called Naples. And in August of 83, they move there. They buy a 20-acre plot of land for about four or $5,000. Now, it's been long since rumored that they sold one of their two vehicles to help give a little extra bump for the property to, you know. Anyways, they can start, they start construction on this cabin. Okay. They start construction on this cabin. They're going to be completely self-sufficient. There's no running water. There's no electricity. You're talking candle lights, oil lights, um, a well, an outhouse, you know, nice gardens, smokehouse to hang the meats. Like, this is completely living off the grid. This is separatist. Being away from the rest of the world. Being away from everybody. Being left the fuck alone. And in March of 84, their cabin is complete. And the Weaver family begin to homeschool their children. They begin to homeschool their children because they don't like the way the things are going in the world. They don't like the way things are being taught to children in school and it's been argued that they don't like the integration of black and white in society weaver has come out over the years and claimed that he's never been a racist he's never been a white supremacist he's always viewed himself as a white separatist to which he's explained basically the difference between those is that you know he doesn't care about the other races let them do what they want he just wants to be left alone he wants him and his family to be left alone leave us the fuck alone that's why we're on top of this mountain because when the rapture comes we're going to be safe while all you down there are, you know killing each other off what have you so but during the mid 80s then they um take in a young man kind of who becomes a a great friend of the family and you could it can be argued he becomes Weaver's best friend. He he's a young man named Kevin Harris. Well, Kevin 
you know, like I said, they're new to the community. They know very few people. They prefer to keep it that way. But you're going to have to make friends with somebody. You're going to have to have a few people. You're completely new to the area. There's nothing here. You're 50 miles from Canada. But uh, Harris, you know, kind of gives a word about him. Like, hey, there's a group of us that get together at this event. You know, we have huge rallies and picnics for our families and whatnot. You should come. So he keeps grilling the Weaver family about coming. They agree. They show up, and it's an Aryan Nation compound. You know, at first, they don't realize what's going on. It's just, hey, there's a lot of white people here. Hey, there's a lot of white people with tattoos here. Hey, some of those tattoos look a little suspicious. It's an Aryan Nation compound. Uh, but it's it kind of sits with them because there's a lot of talk about Christian beliefs and um, they begin associating more and more with these people. They start coming back. They start coming back to regular events on the weekends. You know, they start coming back to to church functions down there. They they start coming back to the picnics and the just the get-togethers. The young kids would play, and of course, the kids are too young to realize what's going on. But they start associating with people that's a bunch of like-minded views like them. But you got to think, here we are still in the 80s, you know, recession or whatnot, hard economy. Um, they're completely living off the grid, self-sustaining everything. But you're still going to need money. You're going to need money to go down to the grocery store. You're going to need money for gas in your vehicles. You're going to need money for this. You're going to need money for that. Well, the United States government, specifically the ATF, has known about this Aryan Nation compound for a while. Can't say the government ain't good at what they do, I guess. They they got their eyes and hands and ears and everything. So they're 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 watching this place. They already put some undercover agents in there. You know, they have documentation of Weaver being there. They didn't know who he was at the time. They just knew, hey, it's a new guy. But the government's wanting more insider information. So one of the guys approaches Weaver about selling off some shotguns. For those of you that don't know, it's it's a federal offense to saw off shotguns to make the barrel shorter than what it it comes standard. The guy pressures Weaver. Eventually Weaver's like, I need some money. So he saws off the barrels of these shotguns. I, it's been rumored. I've never fact-checked this in all the years, so you can fact-check me if you want. It's been rumored that, you know, th- they sawed the barrels off, Weaver sawed them off, and they were an inch and a half shorter than what they were supposed to be. You know, whatever. So, what happens next... Grab a drink here. Wish I had my co-host here to give me some feedback, but uh, I guess we're doing this solo, so. July of 1990. So, June, excuse me, June 1990. 
the government agents corner Weaver, pressure him. Hey, we know you sold off these shotguns. We're going to drop these federal firearms charges against you. And we're going to drop these charges against you because you're going to become a snitch and let us know about all the other illegal activities going on inside the Aryan Nation compound. Weaver's like, fuck around, find out, basically. He's not going to do it. So they get in a little bit of a pissing contest where they harass him for months. At this point, he's been charged with nothing. He's been, he's been charged with nothing. He's just been questioned by police. And then I do believe, I can't find the exact date on this, but I do believe, uh, based off what I can remember and as much as I've as much as I have talked about and read about Ruby Ridge throughout the years, because this was a story that captivated me, much like, much like the Columbine High School shooting and much like 9-11. This is just something I, I randomly, every six months, just browse through about something. But to the best of my knowledge, I cannot remember when. I want to say it's somewhere around the holidays in 1990, Thanksgiving, Christmas, somewhere in there. They go ahead and indict. <clears throat> Excuse me. They go ahead and indict Randy Weaver on a federal firearms charge. So now, now he's fucked. He's done told the government, I'm not a snitch. I'm not a rat. Go fuck yourselves. I'm not doing this. So January of 1991, and I told Kurt this when I was explaining the story to him. Like I said, I told, I told Kurt this story at work over, over the course of like 40 minutes. I, I ran through it a lot faster than I am here. He was hooked on every word. And when I told him this next part, he got pretty pissed. So January 1991, Weaver and Vicky are going down the mountain with their children. At the time, there's three. You know, I think, um, I think Vicky Weaver is not pregnant because she gives birth to a fourth child while they're living on top of the mountain. At this point, she's either not pregnant or just in in like the first trimester. I can't remember. Anyways, they go down the mountain to get some supplies. Okay. Well, there is two ATF agents, a male and female, waiting on them. They pose as a broken down couple on the side of the road. Well, the Weavers, being the good Christian people they are, they're pulling over because it's January. There's snow on the fucking ground. It's cold. They pose. They stop the car. Be like, hey, can we help you guys out? Or you need? They're immediately cuffed and thrown in the snow while three children are sitting in the back seat freaking the fuck out. Um, Randy's jailed. I think he's held for like 36 hours. And then they release him on bail. The next thing I'm about to tell you is... <laughs> sets this whole thing in motion um i just recently found this this part out so unless i grew up my whole life just missing this information then i'm gonna go ahead and say this is speculation but because i want everything in this episode to be factual but unless i miss something unless i miss something this this i i can never I, I don't know. I don't want to say it's speculation, but I don't want to say it's fact either because I'm not sure because I didn't, I did not see this particular piece of information until about a year ago. Anyways, and if it is true, 
then this sets in turn the whole entire 11-day standoff at Ruby Ridge, and it just makes you look like, what in the fucking fuck? So, Weaver's cut out after about 36 hours in the Hooskow. On January 21st, 1991, he gets a mail, piece of letter in the mail, stating that he has been scheduled his trial's been scheduled for March 20th, which would be my daughter's birthday, by the way. Although his actual court date was February 20th. Now, like I said, fact check that. I grew up my whole life always hearing that the trial date was March tw- or was February 20th. I don't know. But anyways... It just kind of makes you think if if it really was if the if the letter was issued with the wrong date then how do you not do anything but point fingers completely absolving the weaver and kevin harris how do you not point the finger solely at the united states government do with that what you will the letter states that his court date was march 20th although the actual date was supposed to be February 20th. <laughs> Anyways, when they made bail for Weaver, one of the things he had to do was put his house up as part collateral of this. So not only if if they lose the child, does Weaver go to fucking federal prison, they're going to lose their house. Just keep that in mind. So, everything I was always read and told, including in 2017, the the A&E or the PBS documentary, which featured Sarah Weaver telling all, she she bared all in this, um, she had said something along the lines of, mom and dad just decided we're not coming down off the mountain again. If we lose the trial, dad goes to jail. We lose our house. He, fuck it. We're just never coming down off the mountain. Irregardless, February 1991, Randy fails to show up for his trial, for his court date. At this point, he's declared a fugitive, and a federal judge has issued a bench warrant for his arrest. Okay? So now the United States Marshal Service gets involved. And these guys, they don't fuck around either, you know. You've seen, you know, U.S. Marshals don't, you know. Spring of 91, Vicki Weaver is pissed off about this whole scenario. She begins writing letters to the federal agencies. And they, they are not ladylike. They are not, they are not, you know, very nice. You know, she's saying things like, tyrant's blood will flow, um, there's going to be so-and-so, the rapture this, the apocalypse that, Armageddon this, um, silver-tongued serpents. She, she's harassing federal. She's pissed. And it point, it's clear to see at this point that she is very much supportive of her husband, and they're, they're very religious. And although people say nice things about Vicki Weaver, may she rest in, oh, oh, oh. Don't want to give it away for those that don't know. Regardless, 
Um, the federal agents look at all these letters coming in from this woman that's going to the U.S. Marshal Service, it's going to the ATF, it's going to the FBI, it's going to the Idaho State Police, all this stuff. And these agencies are getting together and they're talking about this and it, it, it becomes clear to them in their mind that this is actually, really is a white supremacist family. There is a mother in this situation who would murder her own children and murder her husband and murder herself, commit suicide to avoid any of them going anywhere. So this is a delicate situation. So you would think that... Because of that, we have a woman inside who would probably kill her own children, help her husband kill himself, kill herself, that we would approach this with a little bit of thing called tact, but no, instead, as you're going to come and find out, this thing is going to completely go the opposite fucking direction. And yes, while well, I was I was correct earlier, um... October of 1991, they give birth to a third daughter, their fourth child overall, baby Elisheba, who plays a sad, sad part in this just because of what could have happened. So at this point, as I have mentioned, the U.S. Marshals are now involved. Uh, they make contact with the Weaver family March 4th, 1992, playing clothes. They have the balls to go up to the cabin. They're stopped at gunpoint by Randy Weaver, who informs them that they are trespassing. And they need to leave his fucking property. The federal agents, the the, the U.S. Marshal, they don't want to firefight. There's children involved. They go back down the mountain. They set up a command post. They bring in the United States Marshals So Group, Special Operations Group. And they begin to set up active surveillance of the Weaver family property. Um, they place cameras all over the mountain, motion-activated cameras. They get close enough. And then over the course of um, probably four or five months, they monitor the Weaver family. They see Kevin Harris coming in and out quite a bit. They see... You know, people taking supplies up to him. The one thing they never see is the Weaver family come down off the mountain. So, January, you know, Weaver gets out of bail whenever it was, January 91. He, he's, he's never come down off the mountain. And that's one thing. They're so, they never see the Weaver family leave the mountain. No running water. No electricity. But they're self-sufficient, tons of wild game around. People bring them the supplies they need. Vicki Weaver gives birth to a fourth child in that cabin at the top of Ruby Ridge in Naples, Idaho, 50 miles south of the Canadian border. This old school tough bitch gives birth to a fourth child without a doctor on top of a mountain. Because they're not leaving. So now we're going to jump because from, from March of 92 to August of 92, um, there's nothing that happens. It is just a shit ton of surveillance, more and more intel, and 
the marshal service keeps relaying it. So, so the judge that had issued the the bench warrant keeps up. Why have you not taken this man into custody? What is going on? Because this has been going on for a while now. The the newspapers know, like, hey, there's this guy. You know, he missed his court date. Why is this man not in custody? He keeps pushing the marshal service. Get this suspect apprehended. Bring him before me in this court of law so we can discuss the indictment and determine what to do with him. Bring him to me now. And the marshals are like, hey, there's there's children involved. We're pretty sure, pretty sure this is a right-wing extremist family. And I hate the term right-wing extremist, by the way. But this is this is how this appears. The judge says, don't care. Get him in cuffs. So... And like I said, I want to I want to say this one more time. How much bad information, bad communication? What the hell is making that racket? Anyways, how much bad information and bad intel and bad communication between federal authorities and the judge who issued this bench warrant was? Because when Weaver misses his trial date. And doesn't come up, and, and again, and again, and then again. You know, I, my whole life, what I can remember about Ruby Ridge and being enamored with this is Weaver misses the trial because he says, I'm not going. Then in the last few years, the last five or six years, I've, I've discovered this where it's, well, he missed this because they gave him the wrong trial date. The date on the docket was different than the letter he got in the mail. Who the fuck knows? I don't know. If that really was the case, then this makes this story that much more harrowing. But anyways, the bad information, because what information is being fed to the judge and everybody else is federal authorities say, this guy's holed up in his family with his cat. Excuse me, fuck. This guy's holed up in his cabin with his family, heavily armed to the teeth. They're all prepared to die. So, and here we are. This is now, now we're going to jump into this. I'm going to try to blow through this in about 30 minutes. I would have made this more full length with Kurt here, but um, we're just going to browse through it and, and see what we can do here. August 21st, 1992. I'm five years old. A three-man team, which a three-man SOG team with the U.S. Marshals, two guys per team, so six federal agents armed with cameras and weapons begun to ascend on the Ruby Ridge on the mountaintop. What happens next, we know what ultimately happens, but how it happened, why it happened, we don't know. Because to this day, to this day, as I sit here right now in 2022, so this is... 30 fucking years later. I should have waited and did this till August. Damn it. When I tell Kurt that, I didn't even think about it being 30 years ago. So as I sit here right now, the federal government has one viewpoint and says this is what happened. The Weaver family 
has another viewpoint and says this is what's happened. And all we know is that we end up with a couple of dead bodies and a dead canine. The United States Marshal Service maintained the only reason they ascended the mountaintop that day with six guys was to once again gain increased surveillance on the Weaver family, get as close to the cabin as they could get. They're armed to the... They're armed to the teeth. They're not, I shouldn't say armed to the teeth. They have firepower, but they have cameras. They're in fatigues and camouflage. They're going to try to blend in. They just want to see what has changed as far as their habits go. Is anybody new visiting the cap? What can they find out? Because their boss, AEE, the United States government, and this judge is on their ass about bringing this guy in to stand trial. They say... They never went up there that day to arrest anybody. They had no intentions of trying to get an arrest. They were simply gathering more intel. And then the dog started barking. The dog starts barking. They take off running. The barking gets a little louder. The barking gets a little louder. my fucking headphones are in. Anyways, barking gets a little louder. It's clear that the dog is then chasing them. So Randy Weaver, Kevin Harris was there that day, and 14-year-old Sam Weaver take off running. Take off running. They get within a few yards of federal agent William Dagan. Dagan points his gun and says, stop or I'll shoot. That's the U.S. Marshal's position. They said then Kevin Harris responded and fatally shot Deegan with his rifle, which prompted another federal marshal named Larry Cooper to fire three times at Harris. A third marshal named Arthur Roderick shot and killed the Weaver family dog, Stryker, fearing it would give away his position. The shooting of the dog then prompts 14-year-old Sam Sam Weaver to say, you killed my dog, you son of a bitch. And he turns around and opens fire. A a 14-year-old boy turns around and opens fire on a United States federal agent, a U.S. Marshal, because the man killed his dog in front of him. At that point... He's not a 14-year-old kid anymore because two federal agents then turn around and open fire on Sam Weaver, killing him instantly. Weaver's hit. I mean, mean, Sam dies instantly. There's no suffering. There's nothing. 14-year-old Samuel Weaver dies at that Y in the mountain where they all met. So that's kind of... The U.S. Marshals take on it. The Weaver family says that they were out looking for wild game. Of course, they are they are poaching, but they're living off the land. Oh well, they're out looking for wild game. The two kind of meet. The dog takes off running. They shoot the dog in front of Sam Weaver. Sam's pissed. He opens fire. They shoot and kill him. After seeing him being killed, 
Kevin Harris fires off a round before Randy can, kills Billy Dagan. Then we, so so basically both sides are saying they started first, so that's why we did what we did. We met, we fucked up, but that's why we did what we did. And then over here on the other side, the other the other group is like, well, they did this, so we did this, but we fucked up, but they fucked up. So it's a lot of he said, she said. And in a he said, she said battle with the United States federal government, I'm pretty sure, and I've never been a conspiracy theorist about the government, but I'm pretty sure if you're in a he said, she said with the federal government, you're going to lose. Federal government's going to win. Regardless, we're here at this overpass in a mountain. We now have a dead federal agent. We now have a dead 14-year-old boy, a dead canine, and... um. Did Kevin Harris get wounded? I don't remember. I mean, uh, yes, yes, Kevin Harris got wounded. I think. No, maybe that was the next day. Anyways, so the teams are scrambling down off the mountain. They're 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 dragging Billy Dagan's body. They're carrying Sam's body. Um. By night, though, you know you got to think this is ninety two. There's no cell phones. There's pay phones at the gas stations in the general store. One of the marshals goes down to the general store, makes a phone call to DC, says, I need every fucking thing down here not down here now. We got a dead federal federal agent. I'm pretty sure we have a dead child. And by the end of that evening, by the by the nightfall of August twenty first, nineteen ninety-two, this little town of Naples, Idaho, in Boundary County. 50 miles from the Canadian border is crawling with more agents from the United States Marshal Service. Boundary County law enforcement has increased. They have everybody in Boundary County there. Idaho State Police is there. United States Border Patrol shows up. The Idaho National Guard shows up. More ATF shows up. And the FBI shows up. So this is literally like a scene out of a movie, a war movie. You have all these fucking factions gathered at the base of this hill in this big-ass field, just setting up shop, lock and load, all this shit for one family, okay? The very next day, August 22nd, 1992... Um, damn it, I'm sitting on my cord. So what's interesting about this is, um, you know, the FBI gets there and they bring in the HRT. The HRT being the hostage response team. These are some trained killers. You know, these are some special ops guys. These are some trained killers. To this day, they don't know who gave this order, but uh, these guys are going into the woods at night. Okay, the Weaver family. Kevin Harris is already fucked. He knows he's not going down the mountain. You know whether he was the one that actually shot and killed Dagan or not. You know whatever. Either way, he's involved. He, and and he know you know that they they know there's a shit more agents coming, probably. So. Kevin Harris like, well, I guess I'm crashing here for a while. So in the middle of the night, these agents, 
specifically the hostage response team, they start climbing up the mountain in the fucking dark. They're not going to set up no camp. There ain't going to be no fire. They're just going to sit there and they're going to fucking wait. What are they waiting for? Death. Because it's never been, at least to my knowledge, the information has never came out on who gave the order. But the FBI hostage response team basically kind of takes over. They kind of bump control away from the ATF investigation. They kind of bump control away from the U.S. Marshal Service. The FBI hostage response team, the FBI in general, we're, we're calling the shots. Rules of engagement, fire at will. If you see any adult member of the Weaver family, armed or not, fire at will. You do not have to give them a chance to surrender because a no surrender has been going on, a, 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 a no surrender thing, a, a chance to give up has been ongoing this entire time that he has been basically, in their eyes, thumbing his nose at the federal government by not coming down off the mountain. At this point, it is shoot to kill. At this point, you do not need to be engaged upon in a firefight. You see an adult, you blast an adult. And that's what people have had issue with. That's what brought some of the changes after this was done. By this point, at the base of the mountain, because you got to think, this has made national headlines as far as local headlines, that for the last year, this guy's been on top of a mountain, and it's making the federal government look bad, and they're not happy about it, right? So by this point, now that they know um, it's getting more serious and people have been coming into town, well, they go ahead and change their shit up a little bit. And, you know, they're getting ready. More and more people start coming to the base of the mountain down here, watching the roads being closed. So there literally is like fans, spectators, that yell at these people all the time. A lot of them, I'm, I'm, I'm going to come around and say, a lot of them uh, are racist. There was a lot of them. There's a lot of swastikas, a lot of rebel flak, which, you know, whatever. We're not getting into that shit, but excuse me. So, uh, call them anti-government people, basically. So, the morning then of August 22nd. Randy Weaver has said that he decided he was going to go outside and say goodbye to Sam. They had put Sam in one of the sheds, one of the yard barns out there. He was going to go out and say bye to Sam, and he was going to go ahead and dig him a grave. Unbeknownst to them, FBI sniper Lon Harichi, I, I can never, I think it's Harichi, Howard Harichi, I always fuck up trying to say his name. He fires at Randy Weaver. So they're up in the, they're up in these mountains, dude, high up in trees and sitting up on on ledges like they're they're within firing range of the cabin. He immediately wounds Randy Weaver. Okay? Weaver darts back to the cabin as more shots unload, thankfully not getting hit anymore, I don't think. Well, Vicky Weaver freaks out. She opens the door of the cabin. She's holding a 10-month-old baby in her hand. I want you to let that sink in. 
Vicky Weaver is holding baby Elisheba, who is 10 fucking months old. She opens the door, standing on the porch. Lon takes a fucking shot, hits her right between the eyes, killing her instantly. And as she starts to fall to the porch, the oldest Weaver daughter, Sarah, has to grab dive make a diving catch like we're playing baseball like we're playing a little kids game she has to make a diving catch to hit to catch her 10 month old infant sister from hitting the porch and dying too like what the fuck is wrong with you guys she's opening the i know hey i've never been to combat situation I don't know what the snipers in our military go through. At that point, your whole world is the size of a fucking crosshair. But you see, you 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 tell me you're that close to fire off rounds and everything, and you know, it's a she's holding a baby, and you take the fucking shot. Who gave these rules of engagement? Who did this? We need a who who is responsible for this? Like, who who in their right mind says, hey, we've already killed one of their children. They've killed one of our federal agents. They've attempted to kill the rest of us. Let's change the rules of engagement, though. We know there's three other children in that cabin, one of them being an infant less than a year old. Let's change the rules of engagement. We don't need to be fired upon first. You shoot to kill, you see an adult. Who does that? But anyways, Vicky, Vicky's dead. Um, Kevin Harris gets wounded in the chest. Blood everywhere, crying, screaming. Vicky Weaver's dead body is quickly drugged into the house. The door is shut. Everybody's inside. Now they've made the decision. Not only are they not coming down off the mountain, they're not leaving the fucking cabin. You got a shit, shit in a bucket in the back room. You thirsty? We got plenty of water right here. You know, we're not going back out to the well. Some of the agents come a little closer then at this point when they're holed up in the house. They check out some of the uh they check out some of the destruction. That's when they know for sure that they did kill Sam Weaver and they're like, "Oh fuck. That's a child." <laughs> So the agents took off running at the gun battle yesterday where they met at the Y at the cabin. You know, they they were like, well, we know we've hit the boy. We know we've wounded a teenage boy. Now they see his dead body. They're like, fuck. Okay. So over the course of the next several days, they don't realize Vicki Weaver's been killed. This looks so bad. So, so bad in hindsight on their part. They call out to the Weavers. They they get up on top of the mountain. They call out with megaphones and this and that. Like, come on. Let's give it up, Randy. Let's go in. We know you're wounded in the arm. We're, you know, we will help get you a proper burial for your son. You know, we'll pay for a burial for your son. Mrs. Weaver, come on, Vicky. Wouldn't you like your children to have a nice, warm, hot meal? Let's... Come on, everybody come out. Let us at least get the kids something warm to eat. Come on. And it's almost like they're fucking taunting. The government 
takes a telephone robot. Here's our technology in 92. Weaver says, you put that robot near my property, I'll shoot it. He doesn't want to talk to the federal government. Can you blame him? So the robot takes off and it retreats, so they're not going to do that. So here we are now. This is going on over the course of the day, and they keep taunting, taunting about Vicki Weaver, Mrs. Weaver, come out. Let's play outside with your kids. Mrs. Weaver, let's end this. You're in no danger right now. You've done nothing wrong. We just need to get Randy in before the judge. Get these children a nice hot bath. Let's get them some food. And it continues to go on. Can you imagine being, you know, Sarah Weaver, the oldest daughter, Rachel Weaver, their third child, or, you know, Randy Weaver, knowing that your wife, your mother, the wife of your best friend, if you're Kevin Harris, is sitting here dead. She is dead right here in front of us, feet away from us, dead. And they're taunting you in your mind about letting, you know. So, I need a cigarette. Now, I will say this. Who's ever running the operation down there? Of course, they, you know, the FBI kind of takes control of everything, but it's a multi-part investigation. Like I said, you've got the Idaho National Guard down there, the U.S. Marshals, the FBI, the ATF, the Idaho State Police, Boundary County Police. One of them, and I'll get and I'll give them credit. This is smart. They're like, we've got to do something to to to, to break this standoff. They're getting blasted in the media, okay? Because they had they had to make the they had to make the call that Sam Weaver was killed. So you know we wounded and fatally shot a fourteen year old boy. So their public perception is really not that good right now, right? Public perception is really down in the shitter, okay? Who's somebody that we could get to talk to Weaver? Paul Harvey. They have a working radio there. And you guys, if you do not blame me, you can get in your Google machines. You could probably find it on YouTube. Paul Harvey called out to Randy Weaver and Kevin Harris and did an episode. And God, I remember listening to Paul Harvey. A lot of you can remember listening to Paul Harvey. Paul got on there like, I will personally pay for your representation. I will get you a very good attorney. Please, Mr. Weaver, in this standoff with the government, come out. Let's get you treated. Let's get Kevin Harris treated. Let's get these children, you know, what they need in this. Paul Harvey himself, the greatest, I don't know, what would you call Paul a radio news anchor? Whatever he was, Paul Harvey was the goat. Paul Harvey, good day. Paul Harvey offered to pay for their fucking representation. That's pretty badass in and of itself. But still no go. They don't come out. It goes on. So, August 28th, 1992, the, the Federal Bureau of Investigations, somebody, and they're smart, gets the idea, Bogrice. Bogrice. Bogrice was a decorated Vietnam veteran hardcore conservative 
associated and sympathetic to right-wing causes. And I use this line explaining this story to Kurt. This is the this is the equivalent of when Troutman comes in to talk to Rambo in First Blood. Rambo breaks radio silence. You remember when Rambo, you know, shot the helicopter or he didn't shoot the helicopter. The helicopter crashed, whatever, the guy fell out. Rambo takes the radio. So they know he has a radio, so they keep trying to contact Rambo. He don't break radio silence. He breaks radio silence for Troutman, right? So they're smart. Weaver breaks silence to talk to Bo Grice. Grice ran for president of the United States at one time. I don't want to know. I don't know if it was during the Clinton election time or somewhere around there. Maybe it was, you know, I don't, I don't know, but Grice ran and he got a lot of votes. Didn't win, obviously. But they start talking, and, and uh, one of the first weave words out of Randy's mouth was, Bo, they killed Vicky. Shot her in the head as she was holding the baby on the porch. So, of course, these other agents that are going up with Grice, you know, they can't hear. Grice comes back down the mountain. He goes, well, you done fucked up. You killed Vicky Weaver. Shot her in the head while she was holding the baby on the porch. Weaver's injured. Kevin Harris is injured. You done good. Good job, boys. Killed an innocent woman. Killed a mother. Good job. So then their faces are all, oh, so then they hold press conferences daily because this is all in the news, you know. Brokaw, Peter Jennings, all these guys I can remember. Like, Christ, like, you done fucked up? You killed a woman? Then public perception is completely in the shitter now. Will he say anything else, Bo? Is he giving up? Is he coming out? Nope. So this goes on. This standoff goes on another three days, roughly. And finally, on August 31st, 1992, they get the surrender of Randy Weaver, Kevin Harris, and everybody. Kevin Harris was shot in the chest, desperately needed medical attention. How he lived for 11 days during this siege, who knows? Randy does get very, very good representation. Uh, We're talking high money, attorney money. I don't know if Paul Harvey did. I mean, it doesn't matter unless you want to know. Fact check it. I don't know if Paul Harvey did play a part in that. But after the surrender, Weaver did get, you know, some badass representation. They come down the mountain, and uh, Sarah Weaver is quoted as saying, it looked like a movie. All this for one family. Because there's tents set up, there's Humvees, there's, you know. April of 93 is when the murder trial for Randy Weaver and Kevin Harris open in the federal courthouse in Boise. And the United States attorney makes his opening statement on behalf of the government. And it just goes in the shitter from it doesn't look good. It doesn't look good for the government, but then at the same time, it doesn't look good that there's a dead federal agent either. 
killing anybody that's a that's a felony if kill a kill a federal agent you know so as the trial goes on during the fourth day and boy let me tell you the timing of the trial here i shouldn't laugh because there's a lot of bloodshed april 19th 1993 that day should stick in your mind because we referenced it a bunch that was the day in waco on the fourth day of trial, that's when they've had enough with this Waco thing. They decide to breach the compound. And Koresh orders people to set the fire. And 80 members, including women and children, of the Branch Davidian cult are killed. Honorable Judge Edward Lodge, who is the judge of the Weaver trial, immediately orders jurors to completely ignore what happened in Waco. You know why he told them to ignore Waco? Because of the fucking similarities to this trial with Ruby Ridge. So he tells them to completely ignore Waco and focus on the Ruby Ridge trial. So the trial continues on. They get into June of 93. Deliberations take place, start happening. Um, and after lengthy deliberations that lasted damn near a month, the jury acquits Kevin Harris and Weaver of charges relating to the murder of federal agent Billy Dagan. Weaver is convicted. Randy Weaver does get convicted on the minor charge of failing to appear in court on his 1991 weapons charges. They sentenced Weaver to 18 months in prison. At this point, he had already served 14 months. So Weaver goes to jail for a period of about two months, and they let him out. August of 94... Weaver and Kevin Harris file a $300 million civil lawsuit against the United States government for the wrongful deaths of Samuel and Vicki Weaver. Now, it should be mentioned that later on, Kevin Harris is charged, or they attempt to indict Kevin Harris on separate charges once again for the murder of Billy Dagan, which does not go anywhere and then the whole double jeopardy thing you can't be charged for something twice so then this this gets good tell me there isn't somebody on the inside sympathetic to the reaver family in ruby ridge in the spring of 95 the 542 department of justice report on ruby ridge gets leaked to the press and that shit just goes bonkers August of 95, the Weaver family gets paid $3.1 million in compensation for the killing of his wife and his son, which roughly almost just under $6 million in today's money. Uh, The Senate Judiciary Committee then holds hearings on Ruby Ridge. Weaver testifies saying if he could do it all over again, he would have came down the mountain for his court date uh he was very criticized 
the very critical of how this whole thing was handled, which can you fucking blame him? Uh, nothing much goes on. There's some news about this in 1997 that the district attorney for Boundary County charges the FBI sniper with the involuntary manslaughter for Vicki Weaver. Of course, those charges get dropped on June 5th, 2001. The Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals allows prosecution to go forward against the sniper, holding that the federal agents are not necessarily immune from state prosecution. And then two weeks later, Boundary County prosecutors then dropped the involuntary manslaughter against Harichi in connection with the shooting of Vicki Weaver, which is some serious bullshit. And that about ties it up. You never really hear much from um, Kevin Harris after this. He kind of goes off and does his own thing. Randy Weaver uh, ends up selling the property in Boundary County. Somebody's bought it. It's still there to this day. Uh, sorry, you guys, if you're adventure seekers like me that like checking out things. Uh, it, you will be uh, charged with trespassing if you step onto the property. Sorry about your luck. Uh, Sarah Weaver now resides in Montana. She's got a very nice uh, ranch out there. She's married with children. Uh, the other two Weaver daughters, they all, uh, they all talk to their father. They're not as close with him. They've kind of separated themselves from his viewpoints. Weaver has done some good. Weaver has offered advice on. Um, Weaver has offered advice on hostage situations. Weaver is not a very public man. He will speak sometimes when asked. Uh, for the most part, though, he is still a separatist. He wants to just be left the fuck alone, out of the public eye. A lot richer, uh, you know, six million dollars. But uh, he lives back in Iowa now, where he is from, and uh, he is married again. I do believe. And that that pretty much is going to wrap it up. Uh, I don't. I think this episode would have been better if I'd had my co-host here. I don't really know, you know. Um, but um, I keep saying um. That's my transition word when I can't think. Uh, yeah. I just want to talk a little bit about it. You know what? Are, what are your guys? Some of your viewpoints about this? I mean. This was government overreach at its finest, was it not? Am I wrong in saying that? Don't get me wrong. Weaver broke the law. Weaver broke the law. You're going to be punished when you break the law. But to me, the charges of what he did completely go out the window. You know, and one thing, I'm getting too far ahead of myself here. He broke the law. He needed to be punished. But then the way they went about getting him to be punished for breaking the law completely superseded him breaking the law to begin with. The one person I do feel bad, and I have never fact-checked this, and maybe I should have done this, and I'm too lazy to to do this now, but um, I do feel bad for the family of Billy Deegan because you did have a federal agent killed in a firefight, and nobody was ever held accountable for that. Um... You try to bring up charges in another district, another way, and that's you're hit with double jeopardy. So, I do feel bad for Billy Dagan's family. Uh, I worked with a guy for 10 years at Wapaka that looked like Billy Dagan's twin brother. A good friend of mine named Brent. So, uh, yeah. I used to look at him every day and think, God, I'm working with Billy Dagan here. It's weird. 
But yeah, guys, that's going to wrap up a uh, a bonus episode or a Steel Toes episode number two here of uh, Steel Toes of Scoreboards podcast, the Flying Solo Files, Jared Atkins, not alongside Kirk Kelly. And I hope you guys enjoyed it. I enjoyed this story. I don't know, you know, maybe I should have gave a little more background information. Maybe I should have went a little more in depth, but it's also nice that we have an episode that's only about an hour length for once because we usually go in depth on everything. We're sitting here running our mouths for two or three hours at a time. So this this is going to be the first part in a part of three because I am going to do an episode on Waco and we are going to do an episode on OKC because I kind of call these the triplets. They're just linked together. Uh, Timothy McVeigh was in the military. Timothy McVeigh was either discharged from the military or still active when Ruby Ridge. He was no longer in the military for Waco. Timothy McVeigh was in Waco. He seen Waco happen. He was alongside the road selling anti-government T-shirts and stickers. A federal, a a vet, a veteran, a United States veteran was anti-government watching this happen and. Waco and Ruby Ridge were one of the top two or three deciding driving factors in OKC. So, you know, this is the first part in a three-part series. Kurt doesn't know that yet. I haven't told him, but he'll know this when he hears it. But all right, guys, that's about it. I've got to get cleaned up and uh, get out of here. I've got a doctor's appointment, things to do this afternoon. So, uh, yeah, try not to uh, piss off the federal government. Uh, Better watch what you say. Better watch what you do. You know, you might be the next one we're talking about sometime. But uh, anyways, for uh, Jared Ack, or for Jared, I am Jared Atkins. I'm the real Jared Atkins. I'm the real Jared Atkins. Because apparently there's a fake one of me running around on Facebook sending people friend requests with my pick base and everything. But that's not me. This is me. That's my refrigerator. Making that loud ass noise. Okay, anyways, for Kirk Kelly, I'm Jared Atkins. Hope you enjoyed the Ruby Ridge Chronicles, and we will see you guys next weekend, a week from tomorrow, when Kurt and I decide a topic or talk about a topic we haven't picked yet. See you guys later.